1: Hi there and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host Ian Cook and today we're talking about Pipe Politics Contested Waters, Embedded Infrastructures of Millennial Mumbai. The book is written by Lisa Bjorkman and is published by Duke University Press in 2015. Lisa is Assistant Professor of Urban and Public Affairs at the University of Louisville. Now, Mumbai is in many ways the, the paramatic city of India's celebrated economic upturn but the city's transformation has also gone hand in hand with increasing water woes and in this book Lisa Bjorkman moves from the slums to elite enclaves in analysing processes of mapping and politics in the city's watery infrastructures. Exploring the workings of secondary markets, water brokers and planning officers, she reveals how power, knowledge and authority over how, when and why water flows are being reconfigured as Mumbai makes itself a world-class city. Winner of the 2014 Joseph W Elder Prize in the Indian Social Sciences, the book is both profoundly intimate in its ethnographic depth and wonderfully ambitious with its theoretical reach. I had the pleasure of speaking with Lisa just a few moments before.
2: It gives me great pleasure to welcome Lisa to the show. Let's dive straight into the book. And your book is about water, or more precisely, water infrastructure in Mumbai. Now, this is a city which has seen rapid development in the last decades and might be, in many ways, I suppose, the sort of the paradigmatic city of India's celebrated economic upturn. So a good first question to orientate ourselves is, is why has the city's transformation gone hand in hand with so many increasing water woes?
0: Hi Ian, thanks, thanks for having me on the show. So this, this is a great question and uh, it really gets to actually to the heart of the puzzle that um, animates and frames and the book. Um, and this is the idea that in Mumbai, the decades of urban transformation and the kind of roaring economic growth following the uh, liberalizing reforms of the early 90s, um, have also presided over increasing volatility in the water pipes and even sometimes the spectacular breakdown of the city's water infrastructures. And um, at the same time, what we also see is that these water troubles are affecting not only uh, residents of so-called slums, um, but also elites, city elites in Mumbai have seen their taps grow increasingly unpredictable and prone to drying up. So one of the things that um, I do with the book is I show how residents across the socioeconomic spectrum are encountering a remarkably similar terrain um, of infrastructural uh, volatility and breakdown and also um, efforts to manage and mitigate the risks posed by spotty taps um, with all sorts of interventions and piecewise purchases and tanker deliveries and all of these sorts of various efforts to manage these everyday risks of shortage and at the same time what we're seeing in mumbai is that private sector actors and larger consumers are turning to all sorts of uh infrastructural self-provisioning systems they're doing things like digging wells and investing in gray water recycling systems so this is sort of what we're seeing um, but as you point out in the question which is uh, again such a such a really fundamental one the these taps are really quite puzzling these these drying up of taps are are puzzling Uh, The city is India's financial and commercial capital, and so has no shortage of financial resources. Um, The city contributes some 6% of GDP in India, 40% of foreign trade. Um, And and so there's plenty of financial resources that might be used to invest in infrastructural upgrading. And in fact, we can see from municipal records that significant amounts of the city's Mm -hmm. water and sewerage budget goes unspent. Um, And then as for water resources, Mumbai's per capita water availability and engineers' estimated levels of water leakage is on par with cities like London. So there's no shortage of resources, uh, financial resources, or water resources at the aggregate level. Um, So in this context, the book is setting out to try and make sense of the city's increasingly fitful taps. Um, And very broadly speaking, the book is about the encounter in the city of Mumbai between liberalizing market reforms and the city's water infrastructures. Um, So the story starts beginning in the early 90s with a plan that was uh, launched or announced by the chief minister in 1991 to try and transform Mumbai into a so-called world-class city uh, and a sort of global financial center um, modeled or inspired by cities like uh, Singapore or Shanghai. And this transformation was envisioned to uh, take place um, using market mechanisms and private sector actors uh, as resources in that transformation. So the books, uh, the introduction begins here um, although some of the chapters uh, do reach further back in time um, and what I show in, in that those first chapters, particularly the introduction um, is how the face of the city has been very rapidly reconfigured by these world-class city-making efforts um, and these efforts have been fueled by um, new sorts of market mechanisms that have been institutionalized in the city's urban development uh, planning frameworks. Um, And so I look at the particular and quite actually peculiar ways in which the market idea, the idea of what markets can and ought to do, was put to work uh, to try and facilitate Mumbai's world-class transformation. Um, And what I show in the book is how The way in which these ideas about markets and private sector actors were put to work and institutionalized somewhat in, inadvertently wrecked havoc uh, in some ways on the city's water infrastructures. So the book has two parts. And in the first half of the book, I look at this first question, um, sort of how the water infrastructures got to be so volatile. So this is the first question of, of um, what these ideas of markets and private sector actors, um, how they were operationalized and put to work and what happened. And then the second half of the book, um, which is more ethnographic, looks at how in this context, Um, how people uh, meet their everyday water needs. So one thing that that really intrigued me when I got to writing this book uh, was that Mumbai's story in some ways um, invites us, or maybe in fact pushes us, to move away from some of the prevalent theories and frames um, that have been used for talking or thinking through what market liberalization or or uh, what's sometimes called neoliberalization does in cities and to cities and to urban space. So, for instance, I'm thinking here of some of the um, Marxian approaches common uh, among critical urban geographers who are interested in thinking through how market liberalization reconfigures urban spaces and urban infrastructures in ways that might meet, uh, sorry, might uh, serve the needs of, of global business and and finance capital, um, instead of meeting the needs of city residents, um, and particularly its lower income residents, who are sometimes described or theorized um, to be kind of cut off from networked infrastructures um, and pushed into slums. There's this theory that they're sort of cut off and pushed into slums, where without state services, people are forced to kind of fend for themselves. so in stark contrast to this kind of thinking about what markets do in space, this, is this sort of theory, one of the things that uh, quite quickly becomes apparent to Mumbai or in Mumbai is that the water pipes of gated enclaves and elite spaces and these sort of, you know, world class spaces are often just as volatile and unreliable as the infrastructures in so-called slums um, and popular neighborhoods. And, and moreover, and this is one of the key findings of my research, and maybe we'll get into this later in the conversation. Um, One of the key findings is that well-to-do citizens and globally connected elites are negotiating a strikingly similar political and socio-material terrain as so-called slum dwellers in order to get water and to negotiate the everyday risks of infrastructural breakdown. So um, what I tried to do uh, in this book was, um, and and this is just one particular example, but what what I was trying to do in this book was look, rather than than theorize about what markets do, um, you know, and then go looking for those effects in Mumbai. I was interested in how particular ideas about what markets and market mechanisms and private uh, private sector actors and states. Um, what they can do and what they ought to do, how these ideas themselves uh, were put to work in the city by various kinds of different actors in particular kinds of ways, um, as as maybe um, ideas about how to solve social and political problems or planning problems. So uh, rather than think about uh, marketization as a theory uh, that explains sort of urban outcomes, Um, I was looking at how this idea, in fact, became part of the political landscape itself in in Mumbai, Um, Mm -hmm. how these policy discourses uh, and ideas and and ideals were put to work um, in very particular and sometimes quite peculiar ways. So the first four chapters of the book, what I do is I I explore the careers of four ideas, four kind of globally mobile policy discourses. Um, And so these are the first chapter deals with the, the arc of debate over the idea of privatization and what can and ought to be done um, in terms of enlisting private sector actors and resources in uh, the allocation and distribution of municipal resources, like water, for instance. So I look at the way that the privatization debates in the 80s and 90s played out in Mumbai, and that arc is is really interesting. Mumbai is not, is not a story, it's not a privatization story. Um, we, Mumbai sort of weathers the privatization debate years uh, with its municipal infrastructure is still squarely in the hands of, um, of city government. So this is the first chapter and then the second chapter deals with the idea of the market. Um, and I look at how the the sort of fantasy about what the market mechanism could do and how it could be enlisted in resolving sort of long standing conflicts uh, around acquisition of land for public purposes and development planning purposes, how this sort of market idea um, sort of presented itself as a as a possible solution to to enabling um, this transformation um, and then the the third chapter looks at the idea, another sort of globally mobile idea, um, of of world-classness or the world-class city or the global city. Um, not as a theoretical or descriptive or analytical category, but in fact as a political um, strategy or a political idea that took on a life and was, and was institutionalized and operationalized. Um, and then the fourth chapter looks at the career of the idea of slum. Um, so, again, rather than take this idea of slum as a kind of category that might explain infrastructures, I look at how the policy discourses around slum actually become part of the, uh, I guess, the the infrastructural landscape um, that uh, produces and sort of directs and and thwarts flows of water in particular ways. Um, And then I won't go into the details of each of these here although maybe we'll get into that stuff later but so really broadly what the first part of the book shows is how the particular way that these sorts of ideas were institutionalized um, in development planning and in policy produced geographies of built space in the city that deviated wildly from what was projected and planned and permitted by the city's development plan and development control rules. And as a result, uh, what we see is there's a um, an incongruence between the above ground face of the city and the below ground um, flows. Uh, water flows, the sort of built space and infrastructural space. So, for instance, engineers explain and, and insist that there is, in fact, no aggregate shortage of water in the city, but that the real challenge is how to make water flow to the unpredictable and constantly changing location of water demand. Um, And uh, so what this has done is led to a a sort of improvised and constantly changing configuration of water flow in the city. And so in the second half of the book, which is more ethnographic, I turn to uh, the sort of landscape of everyday infrastructural practice to look at how water is made to flow every day um, through the assembling of a wide range of resources, knowledge resources are really crucial here, social resources, material, informational, political resources, and I look at how these Things are woven together um, to make constant ongoing interventions into the city's uh, very dynamic water infrastructures. Um, And then I show how this everyday work of getting water um, produces a huge variety of uh, infrastructural activity and business and brokerage and secondary markets. And then a very uh, sort of key argument of the book um, is that then while um, this, uh, the havoc wreaked on the on the pipes has inadvertently redistributed or fragmented the water department's infrastructural infra- or, uh, sorry knowledge infrastructures informational infrastructures. What we see is that um, the relocation or the profusion of sites at which infrastructural knowledge is produced is in fact rescaling uh, political authority in the city. So the title of the book, Pipe Politics, uh, refers to these sort of new arenas of contestation that water infrastructures are animating.
2: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. That, that That's great. Thank you so much. I mean, when I when I first uh, saw that your book was out and I thought, oh, it would be great to have it on the podcast, the, a question I had was like, so how is a city like Mumbai, how is its... Water infrastructure mapped you know we you know the size and its changes, and so on. But then, after reading your book, uh, I suppose my first question about about chapter one is not how is it mapped, but how has it been unmapped
0: <laughs> so yeah, so this is in fact a, uh, the puzzle um, yeah. also this was in fact quite uh, puzzling to me when i when I arrived in Mumbai, um, and I opened the book with this in in chapter one with this story of. So sort of trying to get my hands on the maps, which at that point seemed to me the, the sort of natural way to begin I, I didn't you know doing an ethnography of, of water infrastructures is, um, is in some ways is a huge methodological problem. How do you do participant observation of something that you can't see uh, because it 's inside a pipe and it's underground and so sort of looking for the maps seemed a, a really natural way to start um, and then so I got my hands on the water department's official Sort of blueprint copies of the department's official maps. Um, but then what I discovered once I started to look at them was that these blueprints uh, didn't correspond in some really significant ways to what I had seen on the ground. Um, and I'm talking about above ground features, uh, you know, as well as below ground features. So I, I quickly learned, so for instance, you know, neighborhoods that I had been beginning to do research in, simply weren't uh, marked on the maps, or other things were marked on the maps. Roads were marked on the maps that didn't exist uh, on the ground. Um, so what I learned was that the maps themselves, uh, well, first of all, they weren't maps. They were a kind of variety of plans. So the department's official procedure for keeping track of extensions to its water distribution system is to, to continuously draw extensions to the network onto its development plan sheet. And so these are plans of things like roads and um, uh, uses of of space that were plans, but may or may not have actually been uh, sort of made uh, actual on the ground. So on these maps, there will be development planned roads uh, that, in fact, were never built. Um, And what's more, um, what what I came to learn very quickly was that this practice of updating the plans, as, as it's referred to, had sort of been abandoned a few years or a few decades earlier. So the last time the sheets that I had in my possession had been updated was about two decades earlier. So this was a real puzzle to me. And, and this is the puzzle that animates the first chapter of the book. Why on earth did the water department stop mapping its work. Stop keeping track of extensions to the water distribution system. So the book's first chapter traces the history of how the department's century-old systems of careful map-making and record-keeping and um, monitoring pressures was abandoned during the decades of debate beginning in the 80s and throughout the 90s. These are the decades of debate over whether or not or how to involve private sector actors or to privatize various aspects of the water distribution system. So as I mentioned in my opening remarks, one thing that really interested me as I was working on the book was the way in which um, particular ideas played out and were put to work during these uh, years following the liberalizing reforms of the 90s. And one particularly powerful idea was the idea of privatization. Um, And this was a a policy discourse that gained significant traction in India throughout the uh, 1980s. Um, where government-run systems were condemned as being inherently corrupt or inefficient, and, um, and the virtues of the private sector as the kind of most efficient allocator of urban resources was really um, kind of celebrated as, as almost like a magic bullet solution. Um, so this uh, this idea was sort of circulating around. And what happened in Mumbai, or what happened to its informational infrastructures, um, Again, this isn't a story of privatization since Mumbai's water department is still in the public domain, but rather, what I found was that it was the years of debate, the decades of debate themselves, they, th- these debates over whether and how to privatize had profound and lasting effects on, particularly on the Water Department's informational infrastructures. So there are a number of parts of this story, and I won't have time to get into it all, of course, but I'll just um, touch on a few of the key parts. So first, um, this idea of privatization in the 80s and 90s uh, intersected in India with national-level debates over pension reform. And in the 80s, the central government... Uh, began to debate amendments to pension laws. And um, this, of course, was a move that met with overwhelming political opposition because of the size of the public sector. Um, But since the Bombay Municipal Corporation had begun playing around with the idea of uh, outsourcing some very particular aspects of water distribution, they were interested in particularly involving private sector actors in valve operations and maintenance um, so While these sort of these battles were being hashed out around pension reform and um, whether to involve the private sector, the municipal commissioner in Mumbai implemented a department wide hiring freeze, and the municipal commissioner um, explained to me. He said, um, you know, if, if it's going to go private and we've hired all these people, then we're going to get stuck paying pensions um, until they die. So there was this kind of uh, protracted period of waiting for privatization that happened. It was almost like, well, we don't know what's going to happen, so we don't want to do anything. If it's going to go private, we don't want to hire people. And, um, and this sort of period of waiting for privatization went on for about two decades. So between 1999 and and 2009, for instance, while this hiring freeze was going on, water supply in Mumbai grew by 30 percent and the census city population grew by 20 percent. But during that same period, we see that the existing crop of engineers and uh, municipal water department staff um, shrunk. So as people reached retirement, they retired and they weren't replaced. So in this context of a shrinking staff and a growing and expanding system um, and city, uh, in this context, existing staff, engineering and laboring staff, was increasingly and kind of piecemeal in a piecemeal fashion, shifted or moved away from uh, less immediately pressing tasks, uh, things like maintaining the the maps and sort of mapping and surveying the distribution network. So these were sort of things that were longer-sighted projects. and as the crop of engineers shrunk, it was it was uh, these were sort of fell lower and lower on the list of of prioritized things to do. So the survey and tracing section of the Water Department was never officially closed. It was just abandoned. Um, and as the Water Department stopped recording and mapping extensions and changes to the distribution network, this information about where pipes are and which side of the road got expanded and where the pipe is under the road, this information became increasingly dispersed and decentralized and was often housed in the minds of particular members of the water department staff itself who remembered the laying of a distribution main or who had worked on a you know, maintenance staff person who had worked on a particular pipe or valve. Um, so there was this, this personalization of Uh, knowledge about the water distribution network. So this was the first part, the sort of mapping and surveying. Now, the second aspect of the uh, department's informational infrastructures that was dismantled, and this is really key, um, had to do with practices of monitoring and measuring water pressures throughout the distribution network. So until the 90s, the water department had uh, a system of regularly monitoring, manually monitoring each of 110 or so hydraulically or hydrologically isolated water zones. And this was a sort of low-tech manual system known as pedo gauging, which involves measuring the quantity and pressure of water in certain mains in each of uh, hydraulically isolated zones, which allowed to sort of keep track of of pressures and flows. But in the context of the sapping shortage, the water department um, decided to purchase a set of high-tech and labor-saving flow meters and to abandon this labor-intensive manual pedogaging gauging system, in part just because they didn't have the manpower to to keep it up. Um, So while the new sort of high-tech devices might have promised to uh, sort of relieve the overworked engineers and laborers, the problem with these new devices was that because of the technical specificities of the network, they couldn't be installed or used at all of the locations previously Uh, monitored by the pedo gauging system. And this was because, for instance, you know, the manual pedo gauging system, because it's not technical, they they, or sorry, it's not sort of mechanized, they weren't vulnerable to flooding, whereas the high tech devices, they didn't work if the city was flooded. So they couldn't be put uh, on parts of the distribution system that are affected by regular flooding. Um, in mumbai and, and mumbai floods a few times a year during the rainy season for instance and also because they were really expensive and, and so they were purchased sort of in waves and so there wasn't um you know there wasn't this sort of one-for-one uh replacement so 20 years later um at the time of research engineers were telling me that they still had a plan to to install more meters but in the interim years what has happened is that the status of knowledge and flows about the pressures Um, has become more and more fragmented. So the meters that are there, they might produce data that's really accurate, in in fact, extremely precise and accurate, but all of this very, very accurate data doesn't add up to anything. So it's essentially extremely precise but largely meaningless data. So all of which is to say that the most significant legacy of these debates over privatization wasn't the privatization of the system, um, but rather the uh, sort of um, dismantling of the water department's informational infrastructures, things like surveying and mapping and, and auditing.
2: One of the things uh, I really appreciated about your book is the way you've, you've titled all of the different chapters. Um, each chapter has a is, is titled by both a quote and then also a more sub- descriptive uh, subtitle. And chapter three is called You Can't Stop Development uh, in the quote and then Hydraulic Shambles. Now, I think this uh, actually... This chapter and some of the debates in that speak to the, the whole first part of the book but a sort of a, a broad question that hopefully will allow you to speak about this is to ask you why can't development be stopped and, and why has it led to such a shambles
0: um thanks thanks for that question um yeah this this idea i'll start with this uh this word shambles um so this this uh, this word hydraulic shambles actually comes from a municipal water department white paper uh, so maybe a good way to answer, begin answering your question is to to talk about what that white paper was and why water department engineers were talking about the water infrastructure as a shambles. So um, what happened was there was, uh, in 2009, after um, a standing committee chairman stormed out of a standing committee after complaining that, um, as he put it, even posh buildings aren't getting water. Uh, and demanded an explanation from city water engineers. Now, this was uh, in in the summer of 2009, and um, the monsoon was sort of playing truant. And so, what had happened was, water engineers had institutionalized or implemented a citywide water cut, um, and this had had because they 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 closed certain valves in order to try and and um, reduce water, but manipulating the valves. Uh, Produced geographies of water flow that were that caused some areas to dry up completely and other areas to see sudden water abundance. And there was sort of the the newspapers were filled in those months or particularly this the weeks right following the um, the water cuts with all sorts of outraged accusations of preferential treatment and corruption and um, Um, And it was in this context that uh, that the standing committee chairman stormed out and said, you know, we demand an explanation. So the explanation that the Water Department drew up um, in this white paper, when it was presented to the standing committee, it shocked the standing committee. Um, which blamed not the slums of the city, which as the location of so much water shortage in Mumbai sometimes serve as something of a go-to explanation for the city's water problems, but instead what water engineers did was they pointed to the state and central governments and they pointed in particular to the two decade long effort to transform Mumbai into a so-called world-class city, accusing these efforts of creating uh, what the water department engineers called chaos in the water distribution system. They wrote uh, two decades of random building activity has thrown the entire infrastructure in shambles. Um, so there was this real standoff between the water department and uh, the state government's efforts to um, implement this world-class city-making project that really kind of came together in this, in this white paper. And maybe one way that I can kind of unpack, I mean, I I go into some detail around what these dynamics are in the book, but I'll I can maybe illustrate them by just talking about one particular instance or, or exchange between the water department and the state government that, um, that happened. Um, and this is a story that went back to 2004 when, uh, as part of um, a, a large scale infrastructural upgrading project, it was part of the uh, Mumbai Urban Transport Project, uh, which was, a, and Mumbai Urban Infrastructure Project, um, where large uh, working class neighborhoods were removed in order to make room for. Railway upgrading and highway construction projects, um, and then these people. This was part of the, the sort of Vision Mumbai, World Class City initiative. Um, and then these people were then to be uh, were rehoused in slum redevelopment housing. Um, so there was an exchange that that I talk about in the book, a written exchange between water department engineers and the uh, regional development authority that had overseen the these two infrastructural projects, um, where. The state government um, asks the water engineer for a no-objection certificate to uh, give water to a large redevelopment complex that was coming up um, in the eastern suburbs of Mumbai, where I was doing my research, Uh, and this was in 2004 and they, they made an estimate of how much water they gave. And then the water department writes back on this, um, writes back on this memo. Well, we're happy to give you this water. We have plenty of water. We can give it to you or we can make it available in that part of the city, um, in 2007. Because even though the the water was available at aggregate level, it was going to take them three years in order to build the infrastructure to actually move the water. So it wasn't just a matter of kind of making water available from the service reservoir, but to actually make, to move that water and to balance the entire hydraulic system. And we're talking about, um, you know, something like 200,000 residents were being moved into the eastern suburbs of Mumbai um, that were not planned for, according to either the city's 1991 development plan and control rules upon which the Water Department uh, made its own water supply planning um, kind of provisions uh, in 1994. So they said, okay, there's plenty of water there. We just need to, we need a couple years to to balance the system. Well, the state government writes back and says um, well, uh, we've already started moving people in, so um, if you could just give them 25 liters per person, then, um, you know, that would be great. And we can, we can uh, build, we can dig bore wells to, for, for water for flushing and these sorts of things. Well, you know, the, the engineer writes back, and he's sort of rattled, and he had shown me this thing, and he says, I have no water. There is no extra water available in that area, so I'm going to be forced to, you know, redistribute from already sort of uh, dry Areas there was already some water shortage in in that part of the city, um, and then of course, but of course he agreed because the the um, regional development authority had written back and said, look, you you have to give them water because we've started to move them in, and if you don't give them water, then. Um, the elected councillors are going to be sitting on your head. You know, you're, these are, these are uh, people who have been allotted to live there, and you're the water department, so you have to give them water. So the engineers were really caught in the middle, and so this is the kind of anger that comes through in this white paper. And that's what they did. They had to sort of tweak and retweak the system in order to redistribute available resources until uh, the sort of system as a whole could be rebalanced in order to make those additional provisions um, available. Um, which they were made available in 2007 on on schedule, as the engineers had said. But in the meantime, um, the local water department staff had to kind of tweak and retweak the system, uh, rationing its locally available resources. Um, So this was what they refer to when they talk about the entire infrastructure has been thrown in shambles. So one local water engineer in in, uh, the M. East Ward where I studied talked about how – managing water in the ward in the wake of of this massive influx of population um in conjunction with the this redevelopment um this sort of world-classing infrastructure projects that have moved this population in that his job has become a little bit like the children's game of Coco, which works a bit like the, the game of tag. So, you know, and, and in this game, Coco is sort of the one team chases the other team, tagging people out and then the tables are turned and the chasers become the chased. So he says in a similar way, he has to kind of uh, you know, sort of tweak the system to enable water to go where it's needed and then the first party complains and he's got to readjust the valves and then the water goes the other way until the first party complains again. So it's this kind of tweaking and re tweaking um that that is uh sort of captured in this idea of uh you know throwing throwing the infrastructure in shambles
2: wonderful uh, thank you thank you so much for that i think it really gives us the sort of sense of the of the first half of the book now let's turn to the second half which as you mentioned in your opening remarks are the more ethnographically centered one and my personal favorite chapter is chapter five, which is about uh, these knowledge brokers, these sort of individuals who have a special insight into when, where, and why water flows. So I was wondering why is water knowledge power in Mumbai?
0: Um, thanks for this question, Ian. I'm I'm really happy to hear you like this chapter because it's also one of my favorites and it's, um, it's also where some of my newer uh, thinking and research has been heading. So I'm excited to talk about it. Um. So, as I mentioned, you know, the, the department's sort of formal informational infrastructures have been dismantled in the ways that I described, but the, this hasn't resulted in less knowledge. But what it's done is it's um, resulted in the profusion and diversification, maybe, of the sites where knowledge is produced. Um, and it's also sort of changed up the ways in which knowledge circulates and moves, um, and also the uses to which knowledge can be put. So what I do in in the chapter that you mentioned here, chapter 5, is I'm looking at how and where and by whom infrastructural knowledge is produced, um, and then how this sort of dispersed and varied landscape of knowledge is then kind of knitted together in these efforts to produce flows of water. Um, So what happens in this chapter is I introduce a range of characters, uh, and I look at the kinds of infrastructural knowledge and expertise that they wield. So, for instance, I'll just go through some of them because it, it's important to get a sense of who these, these uh, characters are. So I, I look first at ward-level engineers. So we talk about, you know, the sort of dismantling of central uh, informational infrastructures. But what happens at the ward level? And what we find is that at the ward level, I look at um, what I call private maps. And what I found was that ward level engineers uh, often draw up and will maintain um, and they'll draw them up in in collaboration with their sort of most trusted loyal, or sorry, uh, longstanding um, water department staff people. Now, engineers are transferred regularly every few years, but water department uh, staff and laborers will spend the entirety of their careers in single wards. So uh, water department uh, ward engineers are really um, keen to build relationships um, trusting relationships with particular uh, and particularly knowledgeable laborers and staff. And I'll talk about them um, in a minute. Um, and so I look at how these sort of private maps, that's sort of the first part of the chapter, and the way that these these maps kind of circulate, and who uses them and who doesn't get to use them. And one um, section of people who don't get to use these maps are lower-level engineers, sub-engineers, and junior engineers, and this is because there's a, a sort of tension in the relationship between senior-ward-level engineers and more junior-ward-level engineers, and I get into sort of, you know, what those tensions are about um, uh, maybe I can talk about that in a minute, but but so sub engineers and junior engineers they don't have access to these kinds of private maps that uh, senior engineers will draw up. Um, but what they do have is access to. They work in a, in much more localized uh, spaces within the ward. So um, the assistant engineer will be sort of responsible for the entire uh, m e ward. So Mumbai is made up of twenty four uh, administrative boards, districts, and I worked in one, the M East board. So The assistant engineer is in charge of that, um, the whole ward level. Sub-engineers and junior engineers will be tasked with sort of monitoring pressures and flows and new connections and things in, in smaller areas. So they are forging... Um, connections and relationships and producing knowledge in conjunction with conversations with people and residents in the neighborhoods and social workers and political actors and things. So for instance, there's one uh, junior engineer that I talk about in that chapter who talks about how um, he's always kind of uh, try, like you know, in this context of tweaking and retweaking the valves that I talked about, now the valve operators um, are the are the the fellas that actually, and they're all men, um, who actually do those valve manipulations. So even if it's an engineer who decides this or that valve ought to be tweaked, it's actually the valve operator who works with the valve with his hands, with the you know the the key, the valve key, um, who actually knows where the valve is and which direction it needs to be turned, and um, you know how many of the rings on the valve might be worn and I do nothing at first. And so there's a really kind of embodied and intimate knowledge that these valve operators have. Um, and the sub-engineers and junior engineers don't have that particular knowledge. And I talk about this um, this one incident where a junior engineer is describing to me how he knows if um, a valve has been manipulated. Um, He says that, well, there's certain valves that sometimes are are manipulated maybe unofficially, and he has no idea if it's manipulated unofficially by a valve operator or unofficially by some other local actors who figured out how to, you know, stick some other kind of key in there and manipulate the valve. But all he knows is that sometimes there are certain valves that get switched around. And I said, well, how do you know? And he says, well, I just go and I ask her. He says, it's my job to know. I go into the neighborhood and I ask around a little bit. Um, And he says, this is really interesting. He says, nobody will ever admit that there's, um, that they're getting plenty of water. But I can tell by the way and extent of their uh, responses, whether the valve has been manipulated. He says, you know, um, if they complain a lot, then I know the valve has been manipulated. If they say, well, we're always having trouble, just a tiny, tiny trickle of water has come, then I know that the valve has been fine. So in the case of a lot of complaints, he knows to take the valve operator to go out and, and readjust the valve. So this is a kind of intimate information that junior engineers will um forge and uh wield um in conversation with sort of local neighborhood leaders and community of actors and these kinds of things. So I've talked a little bit already about the, the valve operators. Um, you know, there's an incident I talked about in that chapter where uh, in the absence of maps there's a leakage a massive leakage that uh the engineers are um, trying to pinpoint the origins of and i can't tell if it's a sewerage leak or if it's a water leak um, because th- there's no sign on any of their uh maps um and nobody has any personal knowledge of there being va- of that water pipes below that road um so they, they don't know what to make of this sort of you know sudden surges of water that keep flooding up uh, the cracks of the con- or along the sort of edge of the concrete road. So what they do is they finally bring the valve operator who knows the distribution system and he knows, well, if it is a, if it is a pipe down there, um, then if we manipulate these particular valves, then it will either open up or close um, the distribution network that would, uh, in theory, supply that section. So using that knowledge, he's able, they're able to sort of pinpoint the origin of the leak, which did turn out to be um, not a sewage leak, but a water pipe leak. And so this is a, an example of uh, the way in which this, this knowledge is sort of leveraged. Um, so this is the, the, the sort of formal stuff. And then I also look in that chapter at sort of non-department actors. So we look at um, this character called the plumber. Um, and these are these are people who figure um, sort of quite prominently. There there is a sort of institutionalized role for the licensed plumber in uh, drawing up plans and proposals for new connections. But in practice, this word is rather euphemistic because most of the most of the so-called plumbers are in fact not licensed. They're they're kind of brokers who uh, work to um, sort of assemble and. Uh, help to get documents for new connections passed and approved in a context where the policy frameworks that enable or might enable uh, new connections or any kind of water work to be done, particularly in low-income neighborhoods, might, um, might be contradictory or opaque, or in, in some cases in Mumbai, um, that there actually might not be any existing policy framework through which particular uh, residents of the city might... Uh, make a claim to access the municipal water distribution system, or there might be sort of contradictory policy frameworks. So in this context, these plumbers, in scare quotes, will do the work of kind of assembling the requisite documents and then using their relationships with engineers, with politicians, with sort of local political actors to kind of move the documents and get them approved in ways that both protects department engineers from sort of you know, complaints of corruption, um, you know, because they need to make water available to areas of the city where people are living or, or else, uh, you know, this will cause even more hydraulic shambles. Um, and, and also, uh, you know, will sort of, um, you know, enable uh, flows of information to be directed and redirected through engineers' offices. So this is really paramount for water engineers, and I talk about this, that, that even work that might not fit neatly into any uh, sort of clear policy framework engineers need to know about that work because if they don't approve it it's going to happen anyway and they need to know about it or else because you know knowledge over the system and what's going on um is really key to maintaining control uh, over the system or authority over the system so this is kind of what plumbers do and then we've got other kinds of brokers we've got local social workers um oh, i'll just back up and say that one of the valve operators or sorry, one of the plumbers that i focus on in that chapter is a uh, his knowledge comes from growing up in the neighborhood where he works, and also because he's a childhood friend of one of the key valve operators, who also grew up in that neighborhood. So there is this really interesting way in which you know sort of local knowledge is produced over years of working with and on the pipes, and through relationships, social relationships, you know, kinship, fictive kinship, uh, just friendship um, among these actors that that are sort of enlisted. And then we've got. Um, you know, local social workers, one social worker through whose office, all applications for new connections will be passed. And then he maintains relationships with one plumber. And then um, he's got relationships both with the municipal councillor from one political party, as well as the par- uh, member of parliament who's from the rival political party. So this sort of local social worker is a key um, sort of he brokers, Uh, sort of knowledge and and social relationality among all of these sorts of things. Um, So I'll just wrap up by saying that um, the everyday work you asked about, you know, why is knowledge power? The everyday infrastructural work of getting water uh, involves pulling together these bits and fragments of knowledge and expertise in these efforts to produce water. So in order to make water flow, what we'll see is um, a particular uh, so there's one story I talk about where there's a housing society secretary who, um, in one of these slum redevelopment buildings, and it's a cluster of building about 70 buildings, and I had learned that they had recently had a an additional um, connection uh, made to their to their building, and I was interested. Well, I like how did they do that? There's 70 buildings. How come they get an extra connection? And what I learned. Was that there was no fewer than eight different characters who had been kind of assembled and knit together. So there was um, the secretary, the secretary's brother, um, who was the driver for a, a politician, and then so there was the the driver, the brother, um, or sorry, the driver, the party and then uh, another rival party, a uh, counselor, and then there was the water engineer and the plumber. Anyway, like this, you can see that all of these actors need to be knitted together and assembled. And the key thing, and this is where we get into the idea of, of, of politics, um, is that sometimes the desires or interests, if we wanna use that word, or, or sort of pressures on these different characters will pull in opposite directions. So, you know, there might be, as I mentioned before, tensions between the sub-engineer and the assistant engineer or between a plumber and an engineer or like the who operate at different scales or have different kind of, you know, answers or, or imperatives to which they're answerable. So this work of actually pulling together everybody in order to produce water is this is what infrastructural work entails. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so I can just I can mm-hmm. just
2: leave Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought up politics. I think in because the, the last uh, the last full chapter of the book, you you turn your attention more directly to politics, and I know like we've been talking for. About 45 minutes or an hour or so and your book is you know a few hundred pages but uh you could you could answer that you could answer the question as, as some of your um as some of your informants do as to why water flows they say because if water flows it's because of politics that's it right so um why do people say this why do people so often say oh water flows because of politics
0: um as, yeah, I'm, I'm an ethnographer, and, and so my, my sort of go-to my go to answer is when somebody asks me a question, I answer with a story. Um, and in this case, it's really easy because I could just tell the story about who said that. Uh, and, and that actually will sort of maybe gesture towards some of this terrain. Um, so this quote, like, when water comes because of politics, this was uh, a line that was given to me um, where – from a woman in a, in a neighborhood that had, in um, the wake of the commissioning of a new pumping station, there was a, a bunch of new initiatives that happened in the winter of 2009. There was a change in the water supply timings and the commissioning of a, a huge below-ground suction tank and pumping station. And when that pumping station was commissioned, water kind of went nuts. So suddenly, you know that there was areas that dried up completely and inexplicably, whereas in other areas, water pressures became so strong that you know the local residents were having a hard time sort of keeping their hoses on the taps, and they were sort of bursting off and creating spontaneous fountains and things like this so every it was sort of went haywire and, and this animated this. Um, kind of rumor mill of trying to figure out what was going on, who was responsible, who and what was responsible. Um, And so this is a lot of, uh, you know, I have a, 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 a chapter on on corruption, and and I, I talk, I look at sort of what um, what talking about corruption does, and, and what I argue in that chapter is that this sort of corruption talk is a way of sort of making sense of the volatile appearances and disappearances of water in a particular way. So this is what was going on when this woman, you know, was was making this explanation. You know, so people, we were sort of standing around, and people were saying, "Well, I think it's because of uh, you know there there had been a roadblock, and then we were the the party who took out the roadblock was. Being being um, punished by the ruling party for making them look bad. So that's why this neighborhood has dried up, for instance. And finally, after all of these suggestions, one woman threw up her hand and said, you know what, when water comes, it's because of politics. And when water doesn't come, it's because of politics. <laughs> um, so and I thought that this was this was such a, a, a powerful thing to say because what it points to is the incredible dilemma that politicians in particular face. And this is the dilemma that whatever comes out of a pipe in their neighborhood will be interpreted as a sign of power and knowledge and authority. Either their own power and knowledge and authority or someone else's power and knowledge and authority, right? So, you know, if water comes, that people are set to work speculating, you know, which party made the made the, the water come. And nobody can agree, even on the same block, everybody's got some different theory, and they're sort of talking about you know which sort of magic knowledge broker or coalition or collection of actors was able to sort of animate the, uh, the, the water apparatus to acquiescence. Um, so in this context, where nobody really knows who made the water come, but everybody knows it came because somebody has knit together, has done this sort of political infrastructural work. Um, in this context, a lot of effort is made by all these actors, not only elected officials, but social workers and plumbers and party workers, everyone um, who have stakes in this, everyone's trying to make a convincing case that they have access or are able to assemble the networks of knowledge and authority that are necessary or that, are, are, uh, that can make water appear. Um, So actually making water appear in a very real way sort of like a demonstration in real time of this ability um, to move this sort of hydraulic apparatus. This is a really good way for uh, political aspirants or, you know, plumbers or, you know, whoever to to sort of signal that they are um, a good person. uh, If you're, you know, if you're a candidate for an election, that you're a really good person to put at the helm of the ward, to put at the helm of the district. So if I'm running for office... You know, if I can make, if I can produce a hydraulic spectacle, which actually requires all that work I just described, that kind of real-time work of assembling um, all of the knowledge and material resources necessary to actually make that water appear, then that's a really good sign um, to whoever might be interested to know that, that, you know, I can do that and I can do that for you if you, you know, if you put me in a position, uh, a really good position to be the, the you know, at the helm of the ward. So, chapter in the chapter you mentioned, I focus on hydraulic spectacles and they're really interesting because to produce a hydraulic spectacle again, you actually need to produce water. Um, so, these efforts to perform highly visi- visible and highly spectacular hydraulic feats, form a really key part of municipal election campaigning and just, you know, political campaigning for, for elections in general. So, for instance, I look in that chapter at one um, story and it's the response of elected corporator to uh, an outbreak of cholera in a neighborhood uh, where what he does in response to the outbreak is that he marshals a, a parade of ward level engineers, water engineers, pest control engineers, sewerage engineers. You know, at least eight engineers, and they sort of walk around the neighborhood. They par- they, they parade around the neighborhood, um, and they don't actually do anything. They, there's no remedial action that, that might intervene in the cholera situation. But what he's done in that spectacle, or what I argue, what I show, is that he's demonstrated, and this is in the, you know, in the... Right up to the election, that he can make the engineers appear. So this is in fact a form of hydraulic spectacle. You can bring the engineers to this very marginal neighborhood. Um, so, you know, I might ask you when people say when water comes, be, uh, because of politics. The question is sort of what is meant by politics. Um, and so what I argue or what I what I show is that it's um, politics refers to this work of knitting together the social and material knowledge resources and political resources, both to produce water, as well as to produce and perform the, the capacity to produce water um, in the future. So water access, um, what I'm trying to say, is sort of bound up with, with what is known about water infrastructures, as well as how and by whom those things are known, um, and then how this knowledge is and can or might be in the future put to work to, to various sorts of hydraulic or material or political ends. Um, and so what we're seeing here is that this sort of revaluing or, or relocation of different kinds of knowledge and expertise are uh, bringing or, or sort of animating new kinds of actors or propelling new kinds of knowledge empowered actors into um, electoral democracy, electoral politics. Um, so for instance, one and this is sort of where I uh, close um, the book, in, in 2007 voters... In a low income, uh, quote unquote, slum neighborhood, um, elected. They actually uh, threw out the 20 year incumbent elected corporator who was from a major party, and they elected their local valve operator to represent them in uh, the municipal corporation. Now, the reason why they did this wasn't because of hydraulic spectacles, it was because they had seen over two decades that this person has really, really good knowledge, not only of the pipes and the valves, but he knows a lot of people um, inside the municipal bureaucracy, and he also knows how the bureaucracy works. So when this uh, fellow swept the election, um, what he did was he was able to, um, he knew how to kind of, you know, write into the municipal water and sewerage budget, provisioning for a new below-ground distribution main. He knew how to get a slew of new metered water connections approved. He was able to get municipal uh, funding for a new health dispensary, um, new sort of the sewerage drainage, all sorts of things. Now, so, so the point here is that this isn't kind of like a politics of clientelism or patronage. This is, in fact, um, voters electing somebody who know how to bring municipal resources to bear on their neighborhood's infrastructures. And the political ends and the infrastructural ends to which this knowledge is being put um, diverge sometimes quite wildly from that which is envisioned by the sort of uh, world class fantasies of you know, that sort of elite-driven fantasies about turning the city into Mumbai. So, for instance, that neighborhood isn't being brought under some kind of slum rehabilitation scheme that would rehouse its residents uh, in tenements uh, and sort of densify the neighborhood, but in fact is seeing the revitalization of um, not only of the neighborhood and its infrastructures, but of public life. So uh, this is the, the sort of, you know, unspecified ends uh, to which political ends to which this kind of pipe politics um, can be directed and is not always directed. But that my my point here is that the future of the city is is really open right now with um, with this sort of new kind of knowledge empowered actor uh, be, being um, put in in the helm of of the administrative apparatus. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I think that's a that's a good way uh, to, to close our discussion on the book. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. But our traditional last question on uh, on all of the new books network channels is to ask now that this book is out. Uh, what are your current and future projects that you're working on? Uh,
0: thanks for asking that question. So this takes me back again to the, the chapter that um, I, I enjoyed. Uh, talking about so much which is the one about brokers so you know my my thinking has gone in a couple of different directions so I was um I've been in Mumbai, I've done a, some research in conjunction with the municipal corporation election. So I was really taken with the question of what role do various kinds of knowledge brokers or brokers of all sorts play in local electoral politics. So I have a series of papers that I've been um, working on, some of which are published and some are forthcoming, about um, the role of different kinds of, of, of what, happens, what happens during the election period. And how do we understand the relationship between the period of the election, which is the sort of very intense moment of um, sort of this knitting together that I've described of this infrastructural work of knitting together? It's a very similar kind of knitting together of a constituency that goes on in the run up to the corporation election, to all of that kind of exchange and social and uh, political networking um, that goes on uh, in the, the weeks prior to the election. Um, those brokers, infrastructural brokers, are then sort of enlisted. So I was really interested to the question that animated that research and that sort of infuses or runs through that series of papers is what kind of politics does the election actually inhabit? Um, and the broker is, is sort of key in that. So that's sort of one strain and then I have another uh, sort of set of papers that's actually looking at a couple of these other characters. Um, I've been really interested in the relationship between the plumber and the engineer. So I've been sort of unpacking uh, actually what comprises engineering knowledge and uh, yeah, and plumbing knowledge and, and the way in which these they, they sort of operate, overlapping but conflicting uh, infrastructural imaginaries and and sort of spatiotemporal and political imperatives and how those sorts of Play out. Um, and then I have a, a book project as well, which sort of comes out of this, which is um, trying to think about uh, what would it mean to think about Mumbai um, if we took the broker as a sort of um, lens for thinking about urban transformation? So what kind of new dynamics would come into focus if we actually just asked him, you know, what, what kinds of things are, are, are brokers brokering? Um, what is being brokered by all of these brokers? What sorts of new openings are in need of brokering? Um, like I've looked at with water, what are the other sorts of new domains, material domains, political, informational, uh, that that into which sort of these new kinds of actors, knowledge-empowered actors, are um, either inserting themselves or are suddenly finding that they, uh, you know, people who have characters already have value or knowledge, are finding that their knowledge is suddenly really valuable. So, like our valve operator who suddenly finds that his knowledge is incredibly important and valuable, what other kinds of knowledge in the city is suddenly highly valuable and is opening up new kinds of political and and, uh, other sorts of possibilities? in the city so that's wow. what I'm
2: up to these days wow there's, that's there, I mean it sounds like a really wonderful direction of research uh, we look forward to seeing the, the book when it's out and also the papers that are forthcoming as well there's nothing uh, more for me to do apart from to thank you again for, for coming on the podcast uh, I hope people at home could tell that I really really enjoyed the book uh, we've barely scratched the surface I think of especially the ethnographic richness of the book so I'd like to recommend it to everybody at home so thanks a lot Lisa for coming on the show
0: thank you Ian
1: Thanks so much for downloading the New Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about Pipe Politics Contested Waters by Lisa Bjorkman. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast and I hope you tune in again next time.
2: Ta-ra!